Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, this is Shep Hyken on Amazing Business Radio on CBS, and I am very excited because today we have Don Hudson. Don is a best-selling author, a number one best-selling author. He's written on over 14 books. Uh, the recent one, Selling Value, we're going to talk about today. And his uh, recent book, The One Minute Entrepreneur, was a number one New York Times best-selling book. And The One Minute Negotiator also ranked right up there on the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Don, it is great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chef. It's my pleasure. Well, we are going to jump right into it, but before we go further, you're a sales guy, and when I first heard about you, what I heard is about the most amazing sales speaker, sales trainer on the planet, and I can't remember where it was, but I think the first time you and I really connected was actually at an SME event, which is Sales Marketing Executives, and uh, so Don, give us some background, because I understand that you started selling at a very young age. Well, I did, Shep. I worked my way through college selling real estate. And uh, interestingly enough, I majored in sales at what was then Memphis State University, and it was the only sales major in the world. And I didn't realize how how fortunate I was to be able to get that opportunity to get into that curriculum and learn all of it I did from Dr. Waylon Tonning, who had uh, some great sales and sales management experience. And I and my classmates uh, got a tremendous amount of value from all the wisdom he brought to the table. And then uh, because of that sales major, a sales training firm recruited there at Memphis State. And I went to work for that company immediately uh, into the business of selling sales training seminars. Wow. So you started selling and you, you, you actually got a major in sales which I've not heard. Right. I mean, I got my major in speech communication, which is, you know, quite different, but yours is sales. That's correct. Wow. What a great setup for what was to come. When did you write your yeah. first book? Well, I wrote The Sale. Uh, it was released in 1992. We got a great run out of that. And, uh, you know, I probably should have written one earlier. I made my first paid speech in 1971, but I don't know. I was busy with other things, I guess. So your paid Once first I started paid writing, speech. I wow. realized that I had a yeah, once I really got into writing, I realized I had a love for writing, like my love for speaking, so I really got with the books after that. All right, so you've been speaking since 1971. I can lie and say I wasn't even born in 1971. But I will tell you this, uh, I was barely into double digits in my age uh, in 1971. So you've been doing this for a pretty darn long time. And, uh, yeah, I've been lucky lucky to have gotten a tremendously early start, and it's worked out very well. Lots of good breaks. Now, as your speaking career, uh, you joined the National Speakers Association, and you were president. Uh, you've won the Cabot Award, which is probably one of the greatest awards any speaker can get, uh, which is the founder, Cabot Robert. Uh, once a year, they give an award to the person that's just done the most for the industry. Uh, so you were president. You've won the Cabot. You were inducted into their Hall of Fame. And just last year, you were awarded the Masters of Influence Award, which is pretty darn impressive. You've influenced not just uh, the industry, but you've influenced the world with your sales training. And, And this is how I would describe you. 
you know, uh, I think that you have enough original material to do full-day seminars five days a week for about eight weeks before you start to repeat yourself. Would that be about right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I could go that long, Shep, but I do have a lot of content. And, you know, as time goes by, you're always uh, reading and researching and adding new content and getting rid of the older stuff that you feel like has become outdated. So that's one of the things that keeps me young in this business. Well, good. Well, let's talk about some of the more recent content. Let's talk about some of the books. And and what I want to do first is talk about the one-minute entrepreneur, because I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are. Now, there are a lot of corporate people and people who work in larger companies, but give us a little background on that book and why we should be interested in getting that. Because I think that even if you're not, quote, the entrepreneur, you could probably have an entrepreneurial mindset regardless of what you do. Yeah. Well, Chef, there's a, about a five-year history on that book. Some some people told Ken Blanchard and I, boy, you guys are slow, and I don't think they meant chronologically. They thought, why in the world are you taking five years to write a 130-page book? But see, this book started off, as you may recall, because I talked to you about it back then, as the one-minute mentor. And then about two years into the project, we repurposed it and changed the title of the one-minute entrepreneur and uh, went more into the entrepreneurial setting, but we kept the mentor theme, and it was uh, a real uh, a book that was honoring Charlie Tremendous Jones in one regard. And then we just backed it up with a lot of solid content to go with a, a terrific story about a guy that Ken and I both loved and knew for many years in our Speakers Roundtable group, and that was Charlie Tremendous Jones. So tell us so about anyway, Charlie. Because a lot of people don't know who he is. I know he's an amazing... I only was able to see him speak once. And, uh, God, the guy was incredible. And and then he gave me a hug, which is one of the things he was known for. <laughs> he was absolutely remarkable. He said the word tremendous so many times back in his younger days that people started calling him tremendous. And that's how he picked up the name. But he's he was so humorous, so dynamic so engaging, just a wonderful speaker, but also a wonderful human being, and, and was my spiritual mentor, incidentally, uh, in addition to our speaking connection. But uh, I loved him like another dad, I'll tell you. He's uh, been gone about six years now, but anybody who's listening to this who can get a, a an old CD or, or a DVD or anything, maybe find something online through uh, TremendousLifeBooks.com and uh, see... Charlie in action, it would be a great experience to do so. He was a one-off. Now, we're talking about books right now, and he had a phrase about books, about uh, the only the only thing that will change in the next five years. Go ahead and tell us what that quote is. Yeah, he said, uh, you'll be the same five years from now as you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. And the books you read will probably course, have uh, most influence, yes. Yeah, and he was, of course, all about books. He owned a company called Executive Books, and he did more to to sell more books and get more into reading, and get more people all over the world into the concept of reading than anybody else I've ever known. So the book, The One-Minute Entrepreneur, is a tribute to Charlie Tremendous Jones. Tell us how that works, and, and as a mentor, how does that fit into the, the book, and why would I want to buy this book? <laughs> Well, the book is still out there, and, and you want to buy it because you're going to learn about the uh, principles of entrepreneurship, but you'll also learn the lessons that Ken and I learned from Charlie Tremendous Jones' example that are articulated in the book. And give me a few and, examples of those lessons. Well, uh, 
course, one, of course, was the reading theme. That's always in there. Another example of, of Charlie's influence was about uh, the importance of leadership and taking your leadership responsibilities very seriously and understanding that we uh, none of us can perform beyond our intellect or our skill base. We've got to learn the new skills to be the best we can be. And that applied well to the entrepreneurship theme. We've got to work at learning and having a, a hunger for knowledge and new information. That was one example that Charlie stood for. Would you agree that the entrepreneurial mindset is an important uh, mindset to have in a corporate setting? Yeah, and we talked about that in the book. We call that intrapreneurship, starting with the letter I. But it's the entrepreneurial spirit spirit within the confines of a corporation because we still own different initiatives in a given organization. And whatever we're responsible for, we've got to be entrepreneurial in our thinking to try to take it to the next level. And it's through that process that we learn, we grow, we do a better job for the company we're working for, and then more opportunities come our way. All right. So the One Minute Entrepreneur, which is co-authored with Don Hudson and um, Ken Blanchard. Dr. Ken Blanchard. Dr. Ken Blanchard. Great book. Go out and get it. You can get it at Amazon.com, I'm sure. You could probably get it through your website, which I'm guessing is uh, www.donhudson.com, H-U-T-S-O-N, right? That's correct. Great. Yep. So let's shift over to the next book, The One Minute Negotiator. And I remember in talking to one of my clients who said, you know, we've got issues with negotiation. And I said, then you've got to call Don Hudson. And I remember you were just working on this book and you shared some great information about it. So why don't you give us an overview of that book? Okay. Well, part of the concept of the one-minute negotiator dealt with the idea, Chef, that we all have at least some degree of an issue with what Dr. George Lucas, my co-author, and I called negotiophobia. And it's based on the idea that most people do not like to negotiate. They see it as unpleasant, confrontational, problematical, and they don't even reach out to try to learn the skills because they're preference, most people just want to stay away from negotiations, when in fact it's so important in business and in our everyday life that we should all be well-versed on negotiations. And We've got too yeah. much to gain by possessing that skill. Right. I think the, the uh, misconception is negotiation is all about price negotiation, and it's much, much more than that. It, it's, part of it can be about price, but I think a bigger part of it is about how can we make this so that everybody wins. Exactly. And we created a two-by-two uh, two matrix that showed the four different negotiation styles of avoidance, accommodation, competition, and collaboration. And we, uh, we have a little quiz in the book so that you, everybody can figure out what their propensity is and their negotiation style, but also a means of observing and learning the propensity of the person you're negotiating with to understand what their style is. And based on your preference and where they're coming from, we give you the skills to be able to successfully negotiate with other people, regardless of, of their strategy they've chosen. Right. I, I love that. And, and when we come back in a moment, we're going to talk about the four skills. But just a, a quick little anecdote. Uh, when people ask me, hey, is this price negotiable when they're talking about me and my speaking fees or our trainers and their trainer fees? I said, absolutely. And they, I could tell they start to get excited. And then I simply ask, how much more are you willing to pay? And <laughs> now what's interesting about that is that even when somebody is choosing not to negotiate on price, 
Uh, that and, and and somebody once said to me, "Well, you're not you're not negotiating." I said, "Oh, I absolutely am negotiating." <laughs> So anyway, we're going to be right back. This is Amazing Business Radio on CBS. I am talking with Don Hudson, and right now we're talking about negotiation. But in just a few minutes, we're going to talk about selling and selling value. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here, and we are back on Amazing Business Radio with Don Hudson, and we are talking about The One-Minute Negotiator, Don's New York Times best-selling book, co-authored with George Lucas. We're talking about negotiation styles. He mentioned in the last segment uh, four different styles. Don, tell us about these styles and give us a little bit more detail. Okay. Well, the two-by-two matrix has uh, four quartiles in it, and one of them is the avoidance process, and these are the people who have the worst case of negotiophobia. They just tend to shove the entire task to the back burner because they do not want to negotiate. And why why is that? Well, they either feel like it's confrontational, unpleasant, or they're not skilled in the arena, and they just don't want to go there. They associate all kinds of negative emotions with negotiating. So... One of the reasons to read this book is you'll overcome that tendency. Great. And is most of it because people think of negotiation, and we mentioned this briefly uh, in the last segment, uh, is focused all about price, and they think it's all about trying to knock somebody down, and they're uncomfortable about knocking them down on their price or getting them to go lower? Shep, you're exactly right, but price is only one factor. There are many, many different elements of negotiation. Yeah, And and it can be anything from from terms to uh, various components that are included or excluded in a a given deliverable. There are all kinds of different things that are negotiated. And once somebody realizes that, because most people, when they think of negotiation, they're, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, this is not a knock against the car dealerships, but when we go in to negotiate for a car, it's always about the price. It's never about the color. You know, right. It's, uh, they got the color I want. Okay, I'll take a different color. But no, it's usually the price. And uh, they always think that's what I've got to do is I've got to negotiate on price. But there are so many other ways. So avoidance, that's number one. We're going to try to get people out of that mode. And what's the next personality? Right. The next one would be the accommodation style or strategy. And that's where people have a tendency to give things up. Accommodation is giving something up. And uh, we tell people, be very careful about too much accommodation. Much of it is is done needlessly because we came too early. But if you're going to give anything up and accommodate the other person, just understand it's not a relationship builder. It really just tests relationships. So if you're going to accommodate, know very clearly what you're giving up and what it's going to cost you, what you expect to get in return, and when. And I think that's the key, expecting something in return for the accommodation. Um, right. When uh, somebody asks me, and once again, you know, are you willing to negotiate your price? And I ask them straight, straight, you know, straightforward, when you say negotiation, are you asking me to simply lower my price? Or are you suggesting that you might have something that would entice me to do so? Great question. So Great that, question. So that's accommodation. The next one is? 
Next, we have competition. Now, we're up on the top of the of the matrix now in the proactive section, and this is where things uh, tend to happen more. We have competition, which is, in effect, a win-lose negotiation. That's where two people are trying to bloody each other up and squeeze and get everything they can get, every morsel of the pie they can possibly get. So uh, basically their mindset is that the pie is fixed in size and you're fighting over every little morsel of it. And that can get pretty ugly sometimes with the win-lose negotiation because you really don't care about the other person's outcome. You just know what you want. Right. I think the but, the issue there is, I mean, it should be, and we're looking for win-win, not win-lose, because when somebody walks away a loser, long-term relationships don't take place. Trust is eroded. Correct. Credibility or confidence in, in the other person is, is destroyed. Right. And that's, that's a tough situation if you're planning on trying to keep doing business with them over time. So the fourth strategy is called collaboration, and that's win-win. And collaboration is when you do a good needs analysis, you talk to people, and you find out what they really want most and what they need, and you try to collaborate from a standpoint of investing some time in the relationship. And you expect the other person to do so as well in a collaborative relationship. And that way you're really working on building a bigger pie. What can we do to both put our creative energies with a win-win spirit into this situation and try to come up with an outcome here that's going to be even better than either one of us dreamed of before we got started? Wow. So, so you build a bigger pie, and there's more there, and it's a good win-win, and you're also set up for a continuing win-win relationship over time. Right. I believe that that the person who you're working with, who you're, uh, for lack of a better term, negotiating with, says you're fair, um, you understand me, you get me, where it's a partnership, it's not just a vendor relationship, that would probably be the ultimate in collaboration. And so we've got avoidance, which we want to avoid. Accommodation means we're giving away too much, too quick, too fast. Competition means uh, we want to get as much as we can out of the other person, and really at the end of the day, it's, it's at at the cost of a relationship, or ultimately we want to get into collaboration, the win-win, and uh, collaboration's where it's at. And so this, by the way, is not like a big, thick book on negotiation. This isn't a textbook that you would get in a classroom. This is an easy-to-read, easy-to-understand, and just like uh, the rest of the one-minute uh, genres, it's a story, right? That's right, and uh, basically it's a, a fairly short book, but it's got a lot of poignant facts and, and elements of information that are extremely helpful in the negotiation process. Let me make one more point, Shep, that's real important about the matrix and the four styles. And that is that while we might go into a relationship with a hope to collaborate, and that's where I'm coming from. I want to collaborate with people. I want to do business with them not only today, but five years from now, I'd like to be doing business with them. But you're not always able to collaborate because if they want to go competitive on you, you've got to possess the skill of competitive negotiations as well. So while my preference is collaboration, if they want to try to beat me up on price, I've got to protect my turf. So I have competition skills as well. So the whole idea is there are four types of negotiation approaches here, and you need to know all four so that you can use them when it's in your best interest to, to get what you want and try to advance the situation in a satisfactory outcome basis. So everybody that's listening, 
Um, this will be my first big plug. Uh, even though we've talked about the one-minute entrepreneur, I'm going to say do not pass go. Do not collect $200 until you go and get the one-minute negotiator because these are skills that are not just important to you in, in business, but when you're with your spouse and you're talking about which restaurant you want to go to, I'm sure that negotiation skills will play a big part of enhancing that personal relationship as well. How about when you try to get your kids to make their bed and clean up their room? I'm betting there's some negotiation skills that you can learn from this book. So that is the one-minute negotiator. Uh, my suggestion, get it now. But let's jump to a different book, which is just now. It's hot. It's, it's brand new. It's called Selling Value, Key Principles of Value-Based Selling by Don Hudson with a foreword by Dr. Ken Blanchard. So tell us about this outstanding book. I've actually got a, had a chance to read it, but I want you to do uh, the justice on it here. Well, thank you very much, Shep, and I appreciate your kind words about it. This is a book that uh, I wrote with great interest, vigor, and excitement because it was a book that really needed to be written. The number one takeaway of this book is that when it comes to selling value, you need to understand what value is. And not necessarily in your eyes, though that's helpful from time to time, not necessarily in the eyes of your marketing department who's giving you 14 talking points for selling value, not necessarily in the eyes of, of your boss, though that's helpful as well. We need to understand how does your prospective customer define value. And we can only learn that through asking good needs analysis questions and having a good collaborative approach with these people to understand where are they coming from, what is their belief system, what do they most want to get out of this. And when we understand how they define value, then we're in a position to develop a solid win-win strategy to go forward. Well, I love this concept. Yeah, I love this concept because uh, I think to myself as I watch TV commercials, and this is a great place to learn. If you're watching um, a tour company uh, suggesting that you take your next vacation to Hawaii, they'll show you a picture of a plane, but they're not going to tell you how many engines the plane has, how many horsepower is in each one of those engines. People don't care about the engine. They care about the destination. And that's where the value takes place. What are they going to receive as a result of going on this vacation? They want to see themselves sitting on the beach uh, in, in a beautiful uh, a palm tree and a sun, uh, a great setting, a beautiful setting, and they want to see all of that. That's the destination. That's what brings in the value, even though there's many more components that go into it. Uh, I remember going into the grocery store once, and uh, I went, wow, that meat's expensive. And the guy went on to tell me why, but I thought it was the same meat that I could buy at another grocery store for less money. And he started telling me about the way he trims the fat, and I thought to myself, I really don't care about how much time it takes you to trim the fat. I just want to know how much it costs, and how much meat am I going to get? And he wasn't selling the right value at that time. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes your marketing department can put together some beautifully articulate talking points about the value of a given product, but if they don't hit the hot button of the prospective buyer, you're wasting your time and energy to even present them. So why this book now? I mean, people have been talking about selling for a long time. Is this a new topic, selling value? Uh, you know, why now? Well, I think it's new to the degree, Shep, that there's some, some new and fresh ideas out there about how to go, to, to go about it. 
Another thing I've been trying to do as part of my vision and mission in my business for a long time is not only to improve the image of salespeople based on the idea that most sales professionals today are high-integrity, knowledgeable professionals. Now, in any given profession, you're going to have some people who are maybe from time to time displaying a lack of integrity, and that, that will hurt any profession when somebody chooses to do that. But selling is very different today from what it was decades ago when the era of the high-pressure salesperson was around. One of the issues, to your point, about why selling value now is my belief that everybody has to sell. Even if somebody is not even in sales, regardless of what their title might be in their job or even if they whether they have a job or not, every time a human being opens his or her mouth, they want to be they want to be effective, persuasive. They want to be convincing. They want to come across well, and that's the only way people can get their desired productive outcomes. So all of us are selling from time to time, and this book will will load people up with ideas on how to do it better. Well, I'm I'm excited about the book for you, and when we get back uh, after our next break, we're going to talk about the four sections. We're going to talk about this concept of the trusted advisor, and we will be right back. This is Amazing Business Radio on CBS. My name's Shep Hyken. I'm with Don Hudson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here, and we are back on Amazing Business Radio with Dr. Don. Actually, not Dr. I'll refer to him as a doctor because he's like the guy. But it is Don Hudson, the amazing, the tremendous Don Hudson. We're talking about Selling Value, his latest book. And uh, Don, you divided the book up into four sections. And there's a reason why. I I can see it's very sequential. It makes a lot of sense. But go ahead and and share with us uh, your reason for doing that and what's behind it. Okay, sure, Shep. Actually, uh, part one is entitled Mastering the Head Game, and this deals with uh, the mental profile of a sales champion, how we deal with rejection, keeping a positive attitude, internalizing our own factor of motivation and making it work for us on a daily basis. We talk about the uh, success model, and all of this has to do with the idea that psychologically we've got to be prepared to go into the marketplace with a strong stance and with a uh, position of strength, because things don't always go well in the selling situation. We get a lot of rejection. And as that happens, you've got to know how to mentally sort that out and deal with it so that you don't take it personally, and you uh, persist, and you endure, and you do a good job of dealing with it, even though uh, it's not pleasant. It's, it happens because nobody can sell everybody. Nobody's that good. So it's a little bit of motivation. It sounds like a little bit of motivation. Yeah, and getting in your head and making sure your mind is in the right place. Because you know what? If you're going to sell, you've got to, it's, it's, there's skills involved. Just like working out, uh, if you're going to play a sport, you're going to work out, you're going to get the basics down, and uh, you've got to be ready to go. So you're going to get mentally into the game. That's exactly right. And if we don't get that part of it right, we're going to be vulnerable to any wind that blows out there in a tough marketplace. So mastering the head game is the foundation for greatness and professional selling. That's the reason we start with it. Even though some of it's a little bit basic, there's some advanced ideas that people can still learn from. Well, I love so basics. Part two, basics are good. Basics, uh, you know, I, 
one of my favorite, and, and, and I hate using sports analogies, but that seems to be what I'm doing today. I remember a picture of Tiger Woods standing over a putt. And here at the time, he was the greatest golfer in the world. And right behind him was his coach telling him what to do, why he was missing a putt, because he was missing or not getting to the basics. And those, you know, even, you know, the greatest athletes, the greatest actors, even the greatest business people, they've got to get back to basics in order to be able to move forward because those fundamentals have to be there. Absolutely. So that's part one. Then part two, we get into what we call the blueprint for sales success, where we talk about setting goals and achieving goals, managing yourself and your market, and how to build a loyal following, what you're going to do to to be able to to position yourself as a trusted advisor going forward. And that's a critical part of selling. Yeah, the blue, you know, I'm, I'm a goal setter. So a blueprint's a good way of saying it, but at the end of the day, I need to know what I need to achieve. And if what I need to achieve requires me, in, in a sales sense, to make a certain number of calls, to talk to a certain number of people, to send out a certain number of emails, to do whatever, uh, knowing what those numbers are, knowing that that's a number that I have to achieve to get me to where I have to go, that's what I'm going to do. Um, my first motivational speaker that I ever saw was Zig Ziglar. Remember Zig? He's the greatest. Very well. the greatest. Yeah. He, 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 to me, was one of the grandfathers of our business. And he had a program called See You at the Top. And what I got out of that was mostly goal setting. I was 22 years old, or maybe I just turned 23, just out of college, and I was trying to decide what to do. And when I decided what to do, the first thing I did is I put together a 10-year plan Not a one-year plan, not a six-month plan, not what i got to do by the end of the week, but a a complete, detailed 10-year plan, basically a uh, goal-setting plan throughout the whole thing. But that's where it starts. So goals, especially in selling, very important. And part three. Absolutely. So part three is what we call understanding your customer. And this is the big differentiator, Shep, about selling today versus selling 30, 40 years ago. This, this shows a sensitivity, a concern about the needs, the desires, the thinking, the feeling of the customer. And it's our responsibility to get inside their head and understand those things and to close any communications gaps and be able to go forward with a win-win spirit to be able to serve them. So we talk about things like the psychology of selling and how to adapt to your customer and understanding their needs and the critical skills of questioning and listening these uh, these are so important today if we're going to be really effective in the selling process. So understand your customer. That's number three. And the fourth one? And the fourth one gets into the concept of securing and growing the business. So we talk about uh, establishing the value of your solution and what you're going to propose and how to separate yourself from the competition. Differentiation is a very big key today if we're going to do a good job of, of uh, competing. And then we also uh, get into the concept of what we got to do to get the order and to uh, handle negative feedback and concerns of the customer and get the commitment and go forward. Okay, so you mentioned di- differentiation. Big word, apparently, for me. Differentiation. <laughs> so uh, th- that's a big word, and not just uh, me using it, but that is a word that I saw throughout the book. I know it's a very important part of this concept. Would you elaborate, please? Okay. Um, everybody we talk to who's thinking about buying something is trying to commoditize it in their mind. 
because if it if they can perceive it as a commodity, the only thing that matters to them, of course, is price. So while they're trying to commoditize, we need to be differentiating and showing them how doing business with us and with our product is going to be much better for them. So most people think there are only two types of differentiation, and that's product and price. And our model uh, it deals with the idea that there's seven types of differentiation, and those are product differentiation. And that's how your offering is going to differ from what the competition has. We have relationship differentiation, and that's when we ask salespeople, how good are you with, with people? How good are you at relationship development and advancement? And sometimes we can create a great differentiator there. Then we have experiential differentiation. That's where we get into your arena about performing miracles and amazing service, ship, and it's the experience so often. So we ask ourselves, what can we do to be able to create great experiences for people? Then we have process differentiation. That's how we do what we do. And many times we, we just do today that which we've always done as a company, and we don't tweak and fine-tune our processes enough to really make our customers say, wow. So process differentiation can be a good one. I think that's also uh, – hold on. Before we get into the next one, I think that when the process doesn't seem like it'd be something you'd want to share or really that you don't think the customer would want to care about. But one of the questions that I would ask if I'm a customer is, why should I do business with you instead of not just a competitor but maybe going on Amazon and buying it at a lower price or, you know, because that's, yeah. I mean, I, I think about all of the differentiation that Best Buy has to do when their customers are coming in, they're looking at their TVs and their, you know, whatever it is they sell, and then they're going online and buying it online. They've done what they, by the way, I think they've done an effective job of, of making the customer realize the difference between doing business with them and an online retailer. But the process, you know, the process might not mean anything, which brings up an important point. If you're going to differentiate, you need to make sure that what you differentiate with is important to the customer, right? That's exactly right. One example I use is a salesperson who makes a call, and the uh, VP calls on and says, uh, you know, Shep, you guys always send us your invoices where we get them after the 10th. You know, if you could get those invoices to us by the 7th of the month, it would be better for us. And I know we could get you paid quicker. Can you go back and do some internal selling in your bookkeeping department and take care of that? And you say, yes, I'll make it happen. So you come back to your company, you do some internal selling, and you get them to fine-tune the uh, the process of sending out statements and invoices, and it makes the customer happy. So I think in business today, even if we're a, a, a billion-dollar company, we need to be able to turn on a dime when it comes on when it comes to making customers happy. Right, and I think that's the big difference between uh, entrepreneurial or smaller businesses and the larger businesses is how fast they can react. And you know, absolutely. At the end of it all, when uh, you're getting ready to lose a big deal, it's amazing how quickly even the largest companies can react. All right, so you are getting ready to talk about technology as a differentiator. Right. Uh, number five is technological differentiation. Now, that could have to do with uh, the, tech, the advanced technology of your product and some of the components or features, or it could even have to do with communications. I had a guy in a seminar recently who said, you know, uh, the decision-making unit of this company I'm trying to sell has got four people. They have made my contact a 27-year-old young man who's sharp, but we're just not communicating well. I've, I've called him three times, and he's not returned my phone call. And he said, what do you think I should do about that? 
And I said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. I said, how old do you think he is? He said, about 27. I said, how old are you? He said, 57. I said, and he won't return your phone call? He said, that's correct. I said, you might as well have been sending him smoke signals. He's not going to return your phone call. If he's 27 years old, if you want to talk to him, you need to text. He said, I don't text. I said, well, you're putting yourself out of business. Right, yeah. You've got to get with the program. So how do we communicate with our prospects? Any manner in which they want you to communicate with them. Yep, whatever channel they want to be on, you need to be on that channel. Absolutely, well said. So then we've got number six, which is marketing differentiation, which typically takes in uh, advertising, PR, sales, and, of course, also social media today. And I like to, to say in the simplistic fashion, Shep, that if you've got something that is resembles a commodity and all else is the same, but you can outsell your competition, your sales training is better, and you're superior to the people you're competing with, you're going you're gonna to get a good bit of that business. So that can be a differentiator. It's our eagerness to learn. And then, of course, number seven is price. We say that one the last. We say go there last. Go there only if you must. And if you go there, go there reservedly. Try to protect your margin. Uh, don't mortgage your future by compromising uh, the margin of your company. Keep it sacrosanct. That's our future. Well, you know, one of my favorite clients to talk about on my world is Ace Hardware. And I love yeah. Ace because they represent – actually, they represent much of what you're talking about in this book. Talk about selling value. They go up against some of the biggest competitors in the world in their industry. Now, they're a hardware store. And in many cases, they're small, locally owned hardware stores. Let's say they're about, oh, 8,000 square feet of, of space, eight to 10,000. They'll go up against a Home Depot that moves into their market who might be 80,000 square feet. That's 10 times the size. And Home Depot yeah. will outspend them in advertising 30 to 1. Yet somehow Ace flourishes. And what they've done is they figured out a way to differentiate. And there's that word, differentiation. And they do it through a number. Of th- it's not through price because they don't have the lowest price, although it's competitively priced. It's not through the uh, amount of, of inventory they have. I mean, they're one-tenth the size. They probably don't have quite the selection. And where they find the most powerful place to differentiate is with the service and the, uh, their ability to sell. And they sell through a knowledge based consultative selling. If you walk in and you show them an item and say, hey, I need one of these, they'll go, okay, well, what are you using it for? And they don't just tell you where it is and take you to it and, and say, here you go. What else? No, they ask you, what are you using it for? And they demonstrate this knowledge. And again, you know, this, this falls right into one of the categories that you just mentioned. Uh, it, it's, it's perfect, as a matter of fact, because they've proven to show value not by price. Uh, they not, they're not a commodity. It's their people who sell based on the knowledge that they, and their expertise that they have. I think you said it very well, Chip. Well, thanks. That's exactly right. So the next time you're looking for a co-author, what do you think? (laughs) Let's go for it, man. All right. We can do well. Yeah. So uh, you talk about one of the words I think you mentioned, and I'm not sure you is is this trusted advisor concept. You might have mentioned it earlier uh, in our conversation about the book. Trusted advisor, it's, it's actually a pretty popular term these days. Uh, most of it had to do with financial advisors, but you can have a trusted advisor in just about any business, I would think. 
you know, you really can ship. And here's the way I look at the trusted advisor. Um, the first rule is an understanding of, of the fact that most people want to do business with people they know, like, and trust. One of my favorite expressions. So what yeah, so what does it take to be a trusted advisor? Here are the components that I think make it up. Number one, trusted implies high integrity. It means you've got the character to follow through. You've got the character to do the things you promised. You've got the character to tell the truth at all times and to represent yourself and your company with total and absolute professionalism. So that's part of what trust is all about. Now, the advisor part implies that you're an expert. So define your areas of expertise. What do you bring to the table, especially things that your competitor might not? How do you display that you are an advisor and an expert in that particular arena? And we need to give evidence of that, not in a braggadocious or an egomaniacal way, but in a, a, an humble and subtle sort of way. But people today want to do business with an expert. They don't want to waste their time with somebody who doesn't have uh, most of the answers they need to be able to go forward. And by the, the way, that's one of the differentiators, the expertise that we just talked about with Ace Hardware. Yeah, that's a perfect example. And then the third component of being a trusted advisor is follow-through. I love to ask a group of salespeople, what is your follow-through reputation? And if it's uh, sometimes maybe, uh, perhaps on time, might be a little late, I mean, those are all compromises of the image that we're projecting to the people we're trying to do business with. So our follow-through needs to be stellar, always exceed expectations in terms of timing. And if you say you're going to be back in touch with somebody uh, by 2 o'clock on Tuesday, let 2 o'clock on Tuesday be the absolute latest time you'll be back in touch with them. So follow through with expertise, keep your promises, and that's going to help. Right. So all of that creates, I mean, you know, the expertise is the advisor side of it, but everything else is the trusted side. And trust creates confidence. Confidence creates loyalty. And this is what we preach in our business, that there's a lot of satisfied customers out there, and satisfactory is a rating. But loyalty is an emotion. And when you can move people from a rating to an emotion, you've got a better chance of not only doing business with them, but doing more long-term business with them. And that trust thing, you know, you mentioned, it. My, as I said, one of my favorite expressions, people want to do business with people they know, like, and trust. Knowing and liking yep. is easy. People can be friendly. The company could have a good reputation. But until I know that every time I do business with you, it's always going to be the same. I can count on it. It's, I can trust that it's going to happen. That trust leads to confidence. The confidence leads to loyalty. And that's the long-term customer that we want. And if it's one and done, well, then, you know, that's really not selling value. That's just doing what I can to get the business that day. But if it's relationship-focused, that's where the true value comes in, and that's, that's the long-term view of things. All right, we are with Don Hudson, Absolutely. and we are going to talk a little bit more about selling value when we get back. And so everybody, hold on. Don't go away. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here, and we are back on Amazing Business Radio on CBS with Don Hudson. We are talking about Selling Value, a book that is just out, destined to become another big bestseller. And uh, Don, you've, you've shared with us a tremendous amount of information. Uh, looking through the book, there's something called value points. There's four value points. It, can you share and, and elaborate on that for listeners? Yeah, I think anybody who who's trying to be convincing and persuasive to get their desired productive outcome, whether they're selling a tangible product or just trying to to uh, uh, get their committee to do what the committee what what they think the committee should do, you know, we're all selling from time to time. So, what are the four different types of value points we can bring into play? One is a generic value point. Now, what the generic is is based on something that you're selling. What is a generic element that represents value that just about everybody would respond to? And maybe it's something that nobody else has got. Or maybe it's something that is generally appealing, but that generic value point is specifically designed to appeal to, to the broad marketplace, just about everybody. Now, doesn't that put you now, into a commodity class? Well, no. You're, you're, a generic value point can decommoditize you if it's something that's really good and has some unique, unique some uniqueness to it, but um, so like going a food beyond maybe. generic is where you start to get more value uh, right. in the relationship. For so like, example, I was going to say like food, it, it has to taste good. So that would be a generic point. That's it's like table stakes. Uh, yeah, it's like a ticket to the ball game. Right. Yeah, because most people have some generic value points, unless they're just the bottom of the totem pole in terms of quality. But your presentation of your generic value points are still important because sometimes it's the very thing that appeals to somebody. But uh, number two is what we call targeted value points. And a targeted value point is where a professional does a needs analysis, and in their effort to find out how someone defines value and the real benefits they're looking for, you discover that they want something that's somewhat unique and Basically, you figure out a way to get that into the proposal and make it a part of what they're going to get as a deliverable. So it's targeted specifically to that prospective buyer. So if you so know you somebody your- likes something in particular it, that may not be important to a different person or a different customer that you've talked to, you'll insert that into the proposition. Exactly. So the idea is that the best sales presentation is one your prospect helps you design. So you do a good job of listening, you ask the right questions, you get all the pertinent data, and they say, well, you know, what we really need is, and they state what they they really do want or need, and that's something you figure out a way to get it included in the ultimate proposal you present. So that's a targeted value point. Now, those are both uh, fairly obvious. We get a little bit more sophisticated in a collaboration, Shep, where where the salesperson and the prospective buyer are really working closely together, and maybe there's even a team on each side, and it's something that's really going to be an important uh, purchase for this big company, and there are a lot of dollars involved, and you come up with what might be a discovered value point. A discovered value point is something the salesperson did not uh, really think about going into this, and neither did the prospective buyer, but through the power of collaboration based on the idea that all of us are smarter than one of us, through the power of collaboration and mutual uh, interest communications, 
we figure out, you know, by golly, if we did that and then we put into play the strategy you're thinking about and then we plugged in this feature and then all of a sudden you are creating a discovered value point that all of you work together to come up with. And that's something that everybody loves because at the end of a meeting like that, they'll say, wow, this was a great meeting. We don't have salespeople from your competitive companies who drill this deeply to try to really figure out what kind of a solution we need. This is terrific. Look what we created together. I love that. So that's a discovered value point. Number four is an engineered value point. And that's where the prospective buyer says, you know, I like where we're going with this. If you could just get your product to do this and this so that we could get an extra 4% of productivity out of this machine, boy, that would really be great. And maybe you say, well, you know, if we manufacture this out of uh, copper instead of plastic, I bet we could increase the life of this product and get you that 4% proficiency you're looking for. And all of a sudden you go back to your company and based on the conversation you had with your prospective buyer, you say, look, we need to get an, an extra 4% of productivity out of this product for these people. What if we did this, 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 and this, use copper instead of plastic, blah, 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 and the engineer in your company says, you know, not only that, but we could also uh, manufacture it in this particular way, and that would improve efficiency. And together, you come up with uh, something that you've created and engineered to solve their problem and to give them what it is that they want. So another Anytime way of... Uh, do that... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Anytime yeah, you do I that... Say, to, yeah, to the degree that we do that and we're willing to explore such opportunities... Uh, more and better than our competition is, that's another really key differentiator. So we call those engineered value points. So it's kind of like a customized solution, if you will. You've got generic, and then you're going to target based on what the customer, this particular customer wants. But then once you start to discover something, you're not really changing your product at that point. But once you, you learn enough about what that customer wants, you're starting to customize the, the product or the experience. Customization yeah. is a big word right now. Uh, it's been hot now for a while, and I think that when a company is able to customize to their customers' needs, that is another, there's that big word, differentiator. Absolutely. And it could be that discovered value point might not have as much to do with the product. Maybe it's the delivery system. Maybe it's the uh, basis in which you ship it. Now, you know, it could be a lot of different things. Right. It doesn't have to be so much with the product. It can be with any anything that you discover that that gets you know the client or the customer excited. That uh, be, you know, and it could benefit you too as a company. Uh, perhaps. That's uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, I've I've worked with clients and and they made suggestions. Could I do this? And I think to myself, I absolutely can do this. Not only that, it makes it easier for me, and I love that they suggest it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this is all excellent, excellent information. So uh, we've, we've talked about these, these value points. As we start to wrap up here, I, I need to know, because there's a, a term, closing the sale. Closing the sale. How do you feel about that term? Well, I don't care for that term. I didn't Jeff. think you did. It's been around for a long time, but closing implies the ending. And closing implies, okay, we got this done. Let me now go serve somebody else. And I don't like the, the term closing because of the implications there. 
because actually when you get the, the commitment from somebody, it's the beginning of a new, either a new relationship or a new dimension to the relationship. So we don't use the term closing the sale at U.S. Learning, my company. We use the term gaining commitments. Right, getting the commitment. And it's a much friendlier you know, term. Did we did, did they decide to do business with us? Is essentially the old, old another way of saying it. But you know, closing the deal. There's an old joke, and I don't need to do the whole setup. But when I say the punchline, you'll completely know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, where basically the customer said, you know, after they decided to do business and they're being treated so poorly, the customer says, you know, I just can't believe that. You know, just yesterday you were treating me so nicely, and the salesperson says. Yeah, well, yesterday you were a prospect. Today you're a customer. <laughs> and that's an yeah, old joke, right? But isn't that unfortunate yep. that that is the way that some people perceive uh, a, a sales transaction? And, and you know what? Transaction implies a beginning and an end, which is like the closing. We don't like to use the word transaction here. We refer to them as interactions, which means there are as many interactions we can have, but a transaction you know, has such finality to it. So yeah, you don't want to close it. You right. want to treat that customer once they become your customer. I believe it's more important than ever to prove to that customer that they made the right decision to do business with you. Exactly. And similarly, Shep, to your last point about closing the sale, we don't use the term handling objections. We think the word objection is objectionable. It's too negative a word. We call it dealing with prospects' concerns. Much more favorable and positive light to put it in. So all of these things are part of my uh, ultimate mission of improving the image of professional salespeople by being a real professional in every given perspective, including the words we use and how we think and how we treat people, of course. Well, I know you, Don. I've known you for a number of years, and you are the highest level of integrity. You are the highest level of values, not not selling value, but your values, your core values, what you mean, what, you're, what you do for other people. You're very giving. You share a lot of great information. Uh, this book is really, um, it's, it's what's inside your head. You've managed to get it onto uh, paper. I know that you're all about selling, and selling isn't about just making a deal and moving on. Selling is about selling the relationship as much as it is the product. And I'm honored to be exactly. able to call you a friend. I'm honored to be a colleague of yours. Uh, and I'm really excited and, and honored that you chose to spend the time with us today to be on this show. And I want to thank you for that. Now, before we go, I always like to ask one final question, and that is what I call the one thing question. Is there one thing that you can think of that you want to leave with us? Something that, uh, gosh, if there's one thing we should remember about this entire hour that we spent together, what would it be? Well, here's what I would say, Shep. I would say no matter who you're talking to, always give it your best shot. You know, if we're not careful, sometimes we will negatively prejudge the value of a prospect or the outcome of a sales call. I say, let's don't negatively prejudge. If anything, let's positively prejudge. Let's go in there and let's give it our absolute best shot to develop and advance that relationship, to solve the problem, to be a resource to them. And if we give it our best shot every time, what's going to happen is we're going to get more business than we ever dreamed possible, because even those people who otherwise would have been on the fence are going to start buying from us. So don't ever let your guard down and give it a half-hearted attempt. Even if you've been rejected and you're taking it personally and you're wondering, should I make one more call today or not, 
you need to make the call and give it your best shot. And that might be one of the best relationships you ever develop on that very next call. So it's mental discipline and doing everything we can to try to make a difference. And that's where I'm coming from. Well, thank you, Don. And you have given us a gift today, and I so much appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been with Don Hudson. And if you want to get his book, just go to www.donhudson, and that's H-U-T-S-O-N, donhudson.com. Look for the book. Look at his other books that we talked about today, The One Minute Negotiator and The One Minute Entrepreneur. But this latest book, Selling Value, has so many key important things. If you do anything at all that relates to sales at all, this is a must-have, not on your bookshelf, but on your desk that you're opening up and you're referring to on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you listening to the show. This is Amazing Business Radio on CBS. My name is Shep Hyken, and I always like to end the show by reminding you to always be amazing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.